Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. The video camera has been a potent tool for revealing what really happened in events that might have had very different outcomes if they had not been filmed. It has also become a cultural artifact used in contemporary resistance movements against social injustice in the United States. In his latest book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency, Phil Allen Jr. explores the use of the camera to capture anti-black violence from Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement to the contemporary citizen with a camera phone. It's published by Fortress Press and brings Phil Allen Jr., who's a speaker, poet, documentary filmmaker, and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good afternoon. (laughs) You write that you wonder how successful the civil rights movement would have been without the video camera. Yeah, I I think we have to ask that question when we go back and, and really look at how important it was to the strategy, um, to, to King's strategy in capturing the, the violence that was hidden um, for so long uh, before, from the rest of the country. Before we get to that, I just want to talk about something that interested me. You describe having to decide what to wear when you're going out for a run. Have you had problems, and do you bring a camera with you? Um, <laughs> well... This goes back 20 plus years um, of being profiled um, from South Carolina in my hometown to uh, Maryland to New York, even here in in L.A. Um, It's just being profiled, even in my own neighborhood, even walking to the bus stop in my neighborhood where someone calls the police on you because you look a certain way. They don't recognize you to this day. to, to, well, I, it hasn't happened as, as much recently, but it's happened multiple times in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, so so that stays in the back of my mind. So when I go running, I, I run three, four times a week. The fact that I have to think about, mm-hmm. do I put a hoodie on because it's chilly outside? I definitely put something on my head, but I got to think about it. Because if I'm in the, 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 a certain neighborhood, if I'm in a certain area, if it's dark, Um, I'm thinking about someone potentially calling the police because this black guy is in my, in our neighborhood. I don't recognize him and they'll get the benefit of the doubt. So yes, I do think about it and I keep my phone on me. So yes, in that sense, I keep a camera with me, but I keep my phone on me at all times. Uh, In this book, you largely cover the years between uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, rise to prominence in the 50s and 60s to the present. And since then, there have been a wide range of controversial events regarding race. Emmett Till, the Bloody Sunday protest, Rodney King, more recently George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery. Um, uh, and um, maybe we could talk a little bit about Emmett Till, okay? Yeah. The evidence against Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam, the, the killers of Emmett Till, who was 14 years old at the time, was quite strong. And yet, in September 1955, an all-white jury found them not guilty of his murder. Is it fair to say that the benefit of the doubt has often gone to the white person? Absolutely. I mean, you can look at history um, back then, prior to then, um, during the time of lynching. During slavery today, um, my, my grandfather, for example, um, was shot and killed uh, about a year and a half before Emmett Till. Hmm. And ma- as a matter of fact, 
my my first book was going to be titled Before Emmett Till, and we changed the title. Um, but he was shot and killed, and his body was found in the river or floated uh, out of the river, similar to Emmett Till. And I just imagine his body looking like Emmett Till's. Hmm. We should so point out that your, your first book was called Open Wounds, a story of yes. racial tragedy, trauma and redemption. Yes. yes. <laughs> Which so, kind of tells us what's going on there. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it, the, the benefit of the doubt has always been given um, to the white community um, and the, the suspicion, um, criminalization is usually given or attributed to black bodies. Um, so that that's pretty common. It wasn't surprising. I'm sure it wasn't surprising to black folks back then when when these two men got off for it. Um, and what's interesting is there's so much history. There's so many incidents like that that are unreported. Well, we can only wonder what might have happened if someone with a camera had witnessed them beating Emmett Till and mutilating him before they shot him in the head and sank his body in the Tallahatchie River. Uh, his killers admitted that they'd done it in a 1956 story they sold for $4,000 to Look magazine. And yet they went free nonetheless. Yeah. So so going back to your statement about if someone had a camera, I'm thinking in, in, that, in 1953, would it have mattered? I'm thinking in 1953, uh, 55, I'm sorry, um, would it, have, it would have been more dangerous for someone to, to come forth with that footage, even more so than, than today. That person um, would have been put in danger for simply saying, I have filmed what really happened with Emmett Till. Exactly. Exactly. And, and people are being threatened today? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, whether, whether it's dealing with anti-black violence um, or... Any type of evidence that could could uh, take someone down, particularly if we're dealing with law enforcement, you have the blue wall, you have uh, the, the fear even within the police department. I have many friends that are police officers that, that have shared stories. And, and I often ask the question, why do why don't white police officers come forward and be more vocal? Um, the, the, the ones that they say are real are good officers, um, but their silence, um, which suggests complicity, in my opinion, um, but also suggest that there's a fear. Mm -hmm. There's a fear from other uh, police officers. Um, there's a fear of how they would be viewed in their own community if they were to speak out against their own. So I, I do believe it, it happens today as well. Um, I don't think there's anything that's changed. Um, just may not be as as widespread or as blatant as in the past. Has Darnella Frazier, who uh, is the person who filmed the uh, George Floyd murder, has she been threatened? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I haven't heard anything about that. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me. I have friends who are um, involved in activism in Minneapolis um, that have shared with me that they've received death threats. So if they have, then it wouldn't surprise me if she has as well. You describe conversations you've had over the years with white people about race. How many recognize that there's been a double standard on the whole? I would say a small percentage, unfortunately. Um, 
and it could be it could be draining it could be tiring um it could be disappointing it could make you angry when you have enough conversations and if you, uh, of every 10 people maybe two or three get it but there's seven or eight that will try and and and, and justify or they can't believe uh, because what you, when you have these conversations, I'm presenting a different narrative. I'm presenting a different perspective than they're accustomed to, which means they have to now look at this country differently. They have to look at their own lives, their own journey differently. They have to look at the people that look like them that may contribute to these injustices and inequities. So it's literally disorienting for a lot of them. And and, and they, they hold even more strongly to whatever ideologies, whatever perspectives, whatever beliefs they have, they don't want to let go of that. So it's it's been it's been hard. Um, it's been hard, hard conversations. How important is it? Who's holding the camera? Very important. Very important. Um, if we go back to George Floyd's situation, George Floyd's, Floyd's murder, hmm. you see body cam footage and you see um, surveillance footage from across the street on that corner. None of them capture what Darnella Frazier captured. None of them captured George Floyd's crying for his mother, saying, I can't breathe. None of them captured Derek Chauvin's eyes as he stared into the camera with his knee on this man's neck. So the proximity matters. Also, Whoever has the camera has power. So when they before they publish, they can spin whatever they want. They can edit however they want. So it does matter who who controls the camera, um, proximity to the event, um, how long they're willing to to uh, to stand and record, especially something traumatic like that. I, I I commend her for the resiliency to stand there, composed enough to watch. Like, that's hard. Not just the fact that she had the presence of mind to pull her camera out, but she could stand there until, until she had to and record the entire thing. I don't know how many other people would have. I don't know how many people would have cared enough to stay in that place. So I think who, who holds the camera does matter. And although... Police officers in many uh, departments are uh, wearing body cams. That doesn't seem to have played a major role in the, what we're talking about. No, not at all. Not at all. Because then there's review of the footage. And then that's OK. That's fair. But there's publishing of certain aspects of the footage because there's an agenda. Obviously, everyone has an agenda. Um so you have that aspect. You have whether or not the camera's turned on oftentimes. Um, and then you have because a police officer is moving, they're in the midst of the event, the action. Um, you can't always capture um, the lighting may not be right. So so it does matter um, who has the camera. And, and, and unfortunately, the body cam footage um, in some instances may help. But in a lot of time, a lot of instances, it doesn't. And that's unfortunate. Uh, often when we get to see uh, footage of something, a controversial event, the body cam footage is not really included. It's just, uh, is it, uh, is a body cam too close to the action? 
<laughs> well, I, I tend to think it, it depends on what the body, the footage will show. If it if it's if it's going to exonerate um, the, the the officer involved, then it's likely to be shown. Hmm. If it's if it's not, it's going to be delayed. It's going to be edited. It's going portions will be shown. Um, they will do whatever it takes. Uh, we've seen that happen. Um, and this is where accountability outside of of that institution needs to be involved. Sometimes the uh, the, the camera work is done by the people who uh, are responsible for the problem. For example, a lot of of what we know about what happened on January sixth in the Capitol is from video footage taken by the insurrectionists. Yeah. And so that speaks to when I think about that, that speaks to the audacity, because um, make no mistake about it. What we're dealing with is not just a political um, it's not just Republican right wing um, embedded in that is this 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 ideology of white supremacy, the audacity to break into the Capitol to record it. And publish it as if to be immune from any repercussions. That's that's audacious. That's bold. That's arrogant. And yet it was their own footage. The same thing in Arbery's case, where you have a man shooting the footage Mm. to hopefully protect his friends. So there's there's a there's a strategy there, and it just happened to backfire. And and he's, he's now going to prison as well. As well. And the footage wasn't going to be shown. The DA did not want to release the footage. It was leaked. That's how we know what, what actually happened. And so it brings us back to the whole point of me writing the book is the, the video camera has been so critical for our survival, protection, um, a chance at justice, even though it doesn't always happen. In the case of Rodney King, we saw that. But the camera is vital for my community. There's power in that. It's a, it's, it's a weapon, in a sense. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest is Phil Allen, Jr., whose latest book is The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. You mentioned Rodney King. Despite footage of him being beaten by four members of the Los Angeles Police Department, all of the officers, all four of them, got off. Yeah, yeah, that that's a, um, a, a shameful time time in our history. And actually, I lived not too far from from where that event happened and where the courthouse was. At one point, I lived near the courthouse in Simi Valley where those officers were had their trial. Um, and that was a case where the camera um, did not bring justice. But what I remind people of is at the very least, it has become a part of the catalog it has been documented. We see it. We look back on it now. And I think some people may look back on it very differently if they didn't uh, think that it was injustice at the time. Um, but it's a part of the catalog. It's a part of history now. Um, so that's, that's important as well. Um, my, my, my only wish was that 
it was strong enough to bring justice to those officers because that affected an, an entire family and affected an entire community that they could do that, which, which explains something like a January 6th that we can do something like this and get away with it and record it simply because we're white, our proximity to whiteness. Is it ironic that after police officers used physical force during a march in Selma, Alabama in 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, we're here to say to the white men that we no longer will let them use clubs on us in the dark corners. We're going to make them do it in the glaring light of television. Well, he said that, but then <laughs> then we have things like the Rodney King case that we just talked about. Yeah. Yeah, and and what's interesting, they they tried to do that in the darkness as well. They they thought they um, could get away with it, but 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 he's right. Um, that that's that's what's happening now. That that's without saying it, that's what people are doing. That's what Darnella Frazier was saying. You're not going to do this in the dark. The, the the guy, the young man who filmed the officer who shot Walter Scott in Charleston, South Carolina. That's what he was saying without saying it. You're not going to do this in the dark. Um, Philando Castile you're not going to do this in the dark um, so I think those words are prophetic those words resonate with us today um, but the question is what do we do with it when it's no longer in the dark what are we going to do with it on all levels as a society um, law enforcement um, the legal system judges, DAs what are we going to do with that now that it's not no longer in the dark. Well, haven't uh, there been responses all along uh, to what we've seen? For example, uh, in December 1955, uh, after the Emmett Tilk incident, the Montgomery bus boycott began in Alabama. And eventually in the United States, uh, uh, a U.S. Supreme Court ruling uh, came down that s- segregated buses were unconstitutional. Um, couldn't we also say that um, there may not be as effective a civil rights movement or Black Lives Matter movement without the camera? If, if I understand you correctly, um, even when we talk about those things that happen, look at the cost. Look at the cost of those 381 days. Hmm. To get a law passed. Um, look at the cost of marching throughout 2020, summer of 2020. But then think about this. The progress is made when we have these events, these major events that everyone sees. But behind, but meanwhile, there are still hundreds, if not thousands of these events happening behind the scenes and and, he, and these families feel unseen hmm. my family was one when my grandfather was killed we didn't get the same response there was no trial there was no investigation my great grandfather 20 years earlier was killed at the hands of racism no one ever went to just um, held, held, held accountable what reason was given for those killings my death, death certificate on my grandfather's the, the, the cause of death says 
accidental drowning, Mm -hmm. fell off the boat. A Navy veteran, a great swimmer, I understand. He was great. He was a great swimmer. He was a man of the the water. He, He was a fisherman, a seaman. And all they said was he fell off the boat and drowned. Even though there was a witness that saw two men struggling with my, with a black man, even though there's a my great grandfather saw his body and saw a bullet hole in the back of his head, hmm. that's how my grandmother knew that he was killed, and nothing ever came of it. There are thousands of stories like that. Every time I show my film, someone share. If they're an older person, they share a story about an uncle, a grandfather, a father, a brother that went missing or that was killed and they have no no idea in the south usually but no no I, no no one was ever held accountable and they say it through tears so the 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 trauma they're triggered in that moment and they're reminded of their family member so while we do celebrate the progress we also have to realize there's so much more happening behind the scenes continually And we were talking about uh, when this involves the police. Has anybody uh, tried to come up with uh, a figure about how many African-Americans have died at the hands of police uh, without video footage? Yes, I I have a I I, I don't the the name escapes me right now and I can send it to you later. Um, There's an organization that that really that tracks um, police shootings, murders by demographic, by age, by state, what have you. A friend of mine was on that on that team doing the research and um, sent me the database. I, the, the name of the organization escapes me right now, but they have that data. Uh, matter of fact, the government actually uses my understanding, uses that data to come up with to, to understand what's really happening, who's being shot and killed at what rate, what communities, uh, what have you. So, yeah, there is data out there. You write about Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination, which offers a theological and ethical reading of uh, the Hebrew noble and was originally published over 40 years ago. How does that apply to what we're discussing here? Yeah, so, so Brueggemann, his argument about his thesis about what is prophetic, what does it mean to be prophetic? You know, everyone talks about um, today, we, we throw that term around. And so he he says the prophetic ministry nurtures and nourishes and evokes an alternative consciousness to the dominant consciousness while criticizing the dominant consciousness and energizing an alternative community. So that's a lot. So what I did was I framed the camera in light of that thesis, that the camera, if we were to look at whether it's the picture of Emmett Till, or Bloody Sunday, or the, the, the video, Darnella Frazier's video of George Floyd's murder. What did it do? It nurtures, nourishes, or evokes an alternative consciousness. It makes people have to look, to stop, to pay attention, and it's disruptive of whatever that dominant narrative, that dominant consciousness has, it is. It's disruptive of that. And so it forces us to have to now consider an alternative narrative. So where black folks generally see what happened with George Floyd, we're not surprised. This happens all over the country to varying degrees. 
And now it's, it's forcing the rest of America who, who are who have been privy of this violence, privy to this violence, to now have to consider an alternative consciousness. And so the camera inherently crit, crit, criticizes the institution of law enforcement. It criticizes media. It criticizes whatever has contributed to continuing the alternative, the, the dominant consciousness. And it energizes a new community and nothing can be seen more clearly than the civil rights movement. And the summer of 2020, where there was this energizing, obviously 2020 was way more uh, diverse than the civil rights movement, although there were people, white folks and Jewish folks um, that joined in that movement. But what we saw in 2020 was an, a, a, a new and alternative community being energized and many of them younger, like something has to change. We can't continue. That can't keep happening is what that new community, that, that new consciousness says. And so that's how I frame the camera using Brueggemann's uh, thesis in prophetic imagination. But you do talk a lot about religion in this book. Um, is that because you had full-time pastoral ministry for 13 years at one point in your life? Yeah, so, so my, my, my background, I was a pastor for the, the previous, uh, for about 13 years in a pastoral ministry for about 16 years. And um, I've since stepped away from pastoral ministry and focusing now on writing, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as teaching in, 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 the, in the academy. And um, so my background is the church. And, and my challenge also is not just to offer this to the culture, but it is to challenge the church. So generally when I write, I weave in theological um, reflections or theological perspectives into the book because I want to pull the church into this conversation and challenge the church to no longer be silent, particularly the evangelical right leaning conservative churches. So, yes, my background plays a role in that. Um, my research as a PhD candidate is uh, Christian ethics, theology and culture, race, racism. I sit at that intersection. Aren't politics and religion often linked in black communities more than in uh, other religions? Absolutely. In other groups? Absolutely. We, 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 we've had to. Um, we understand, we've always understood that while our faith matters, now faith has been foundational going back even to the time of slavery um, not that every enslaved person embraced Christianity because actually it was a smaller percentage than many would, 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 would realize but our faith co-opting a faith that claimed to justify our oppression and enslavement they actually used that faith as a means of liberation and it continues to this day but we also understood that the law laws needed to be changed. We understood that um, politically we, we couldn't just stand by and, and have this blind faith and, and kumbaya um, and sing Negro spirituals all day. Like we practically we had to engage. So politics, political activism, um, addressing uh, the legal system, the criminal justice system, things like that have always been, a, been interwoven into the black community. Um, as much as our faith. But you even get into the matter of whether Jesus was white or black. And I remember growing up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, 
and so many people are uh, my neighbors saying, well, uh, Jesus was was black. Really? Yeah. Well, that was a, a big thing in in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. A major part of the, the discussion. You know, I, I think um, one of the things that we have to uh, appreciate or at least acknowledge is the power in symbols, um, vis- the visual. And I think um, we have to acknowledge the, Christ- the roots of Christianity and white supremacy, colonialism, slavery, what have you. And part of what what uh, kind of perpetuated that or, or grounded that was this presentation of a God. If Jesus is, in fact, God in flesh as the Christian faith, as we believe of a God that looks like white men. Yet. When you read the Bible and you understand the con- the, the social context. He would not have looked like a white man. I'm not saying he would have been as dark as me. I'm saying he was not going to be white with straight hair, blonde hair. He's not described that way in scripture and he wouldn't have been that way. And so what, what was the motivation behind making him white? I think it, it, it just supports the, the notion of white supremacy because that begins, you begin to internalize that. You see a white Jesus, you, you live in a, a culture of, of, of white superiority, you tend to make those connections, you internalize that even as a person of color. Well, um, white, so that was strategic. White takes on a special significance for white supremacists. So they say that Jews aren't white. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that, 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 you know, supports the whole, the whole ideology is to present this, this God in their image. And I think it's important when you can, if, if, if you want to radically change the church, then you have to radically change how you view God. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Can I get you're enjoying my conversation with Phil Allen Jr. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency, from MLK to Darnella Frazier. Uh, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Phil Allen, Jr., whose latest book is published by Fortress Press. Now, um, you uh, say that through technological advances and its democratization, the camera has a dual functionality in the past. Uh, most of the filming was done by professionals. Now we have people like Darnella Frazier using a phone to record and post the murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. Um, 
is it, how much of uh, what we're talking about comes from professional photographers and how much of it comes from people who just happen to become a witness of, uh, to something that shouldn't have occurred? Well, I think years ago, it pretty much came from professional cameramen and women. Um, I think at the invention or of uh, the camcorder is when you started to see individuals have the ability to capture images themselves and they would release it to media outlets. So they still had to, there still was a level of power that they had to defer to. So they could record like in the Rodney King situation, but they had to either sell or give permission to to media outlets to use the, the footage. Now, in the 21st century, the last 15, 10, 10 years, 15 years, I don't know, can't remember how long video cameras have been been going on, been available. Now it's about 50, I'd say it's, it's, it's evenly split. Anybody can capture any moment, moment at any time. But we also have news, uh, like media outlets that, that continually have uh, cameramen and women out throughout the city capturing images as well. Um, it's just that obviously with the democratization of the camera, the camera is now in the hands of anyone with a, with a smartphone. You're going to have more opportunities for the ordinary citizen to capture events, to happen to be there, you know, and capture these events. Judging from what I see regularly on TV news reports, not all the negative activities are being directed against black people. In some cases, it's black people engaging in bad activities against whites or other blacks. So it's it can be a little more complex than simply racism at work. Oh, absolutely. This my book is focused on the history um, of anti-black racism and how important the camera is for our community. Absolutely. You can broaden this out and use it for any situation. We just saw the video footage of Uvalde, Mm -hmm. how important the camera was there. Um, you see anti-black racism, um, anti-Asian racism, um, violence. And you see some of the people who, who were committing that were African-American. So the camera itself is not exclusive to the black community. Yeah. I'm just saying it's important to the black community. And, because and film and photographs have been used to widely differing ends, both positive and negative. And hope you'll forgive that pun. Yes. Yes, you, you have you have images um, that capture the violence, but especially today on social media, which is the other half of the the power that 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 every ordinary citizens have is that they can publish it themselves on their social media. Um, but you you see it you see it today. You see people who strategically use their social media to post funny, positive, heartwarming um, events. There's a section of my book where I talk about where I recorded my, my niece at the time she was probably three or four and I recorded her t- tumbling in, in, in our family room mm. and I heard my grandmother's voice and I, I had turned the camera at the time like the camera caught my grandmother my grandmother has since passed away and for me whenever I see that video 
it's, it's heartwarming. It's soothing. Sometimes it brings me to tears because I was able to capture a moment of someone who was very dear to me. So absolutely, the camera can be used positively or negatively. And they're very um, and they're very important to the people who are doing the filming. But to be honest, uh, they also clutter up my Facebook page. <laughs> I, I, I receive an awful lot of stuff about um, kids doing funny things. Yes, from people I who whose names I don't recognize, and and uh, and I have no relevance to my life. But I guess that's also part of living in the year twenty twenty two. Yeah, or cats, cats and dogs yes, videos. Lots well. of them. <laughs> How important have the depictions of race been in theatrical films? You compare the use of the camera in a in films like D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Yeah, that's, this is so so crucial because the thing about the camera, you know, it's not just about the content, it's about the narrative. The, the camera captures content for sure, but it's also creating or telling or perpetuating a narrative. So D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation, created this narrative um, of the, the dangerous black man, particularly black men who lust after white women. And, and shockingly, watch, it was screened in the White House by Woodrow Wilson. Exactly. Which, which, which gives it even more credibility at the time. So it, it, it stamps it. it. It justifies it. So when Griffith's film comes out, and he creates this narrative, and now it's widespread. Um, that narrative continued for generations, even to this day, that it's so woven into the fabric of, of our country, into the, the, the psyche, the collective psyche, that black is dangerous, particularly black men are dangerous. Now, what's interesting is we talk about black on black crime. I never hear people talk about white on white crime. And so while most crimes That's just called black, crime. Yeah, it's just called crime. The, and so, but most white folks are assaulted. Most white women are assaulted, raped, what have you, by white men. Similar to in the black community, and I would imagine the Hispanic community as well, and other communities. But we don't talk about that. But the narrative is black men are dangerous, particularly to white women. And we can talk about narratives about black women as well, narratives about Asians, what have you. And so film becomes this powerful tool to create a narrative that we then internalize. And we teach the next generation because they see the same films. How? And so Spike Lee's people like John Singleton, um, we can go back to Oscar Micheaux. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you about the films of Oscar Micheaux. He made silent films. Yeah. And I hadn't been familiar with Oscar Micheaux until writing this book. But he was a predecessor to he wanted to disrupt the narrative. He wanted that, that was sometimes something prophetic about his work. He wanted to create an alternative consciousness and represent black people back to the country that would disrupt what, what Birth of a Nation had done. And it wasn't easy for him. His journey wasn't easy to get that off off the ground. And then you fast forward to someone like a Spike Lee particularly do the right thing. I remember watching when I was a kid and it resonated so much. Um, Spike Lee's 
story was telling a real story, especially the story of Radio Rahim. It was based off of a real event of a young man um, in in Brooklyn that was uh, killed by law enforcement. And how relevant is Spike Lee's film, if you watch it, to what happened to George Floyd two years, two, two plus years ago? Now, that film drew white viewers as well as, as African-American viewers. Uh, so do you think that it, it uh, had a positive role? Uh, for, for example, when you were talking about Birth of a Nation, um, haven't depictions of slavery changed an awful lot over the years in our movies? Um, not in my opinion. <laughs> really? You think it's um, presented still as a, a happy time where the darkies are singing spirituals? Well, I mean, Birth of a Nation is is one film that, that depicts that. And there are other films like Gone with the Wind that, that also depict us as caricatures of, of who we are. Um, and there are other films as well. And they're, they're, because these were today... And you have more people of color behind the camera. So, yes, in that sense, they're telling more of the fuller story, a richer story, a broader range of, of what was happening um, during the time of slavery compa- as compared to a birth of a nation or gone with the wind. So in that sense, yeah, um, but but it, slave, slavery is still slavery. I'm more in, uh, in, uh, interested in how we are portrayed as black people in our fullness and our richness and what we bring to the culture, to, to society. I'm more concerned about that, not just about how slavery is, is presented. Are you encouraged by the creation of new outlets like black entertainment television and TV one on presenting a more complete narrative of who black people are and what blackness means? I'm encouraged in the sense that there are these outlets. There, 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 there are places that we can go to see, um, black faces, black actors, black voices, um, black stories being told. Yes, in that sense. But I also have to think about who's the parent company, because there are some restrictions when you start looking at the parent company. You, you, I, I'm, I'm concerned about who's saying what we can tell and what we can't tell, what stories we can and can't tell. I have friends who are writers, directors, producers. I have friends in the industry here in L.A. And I've heard some of the stories behind the scenes of them fighting, having to fight for the opportunity to tell a true story, authentic story, and not the story that white writers, white producers and directors think are going to sell. So behind the scenes, while we while we see that these outlets are there, there's still minimal outlets. It's still only a, a handful. Yeah. But while we see these outlets are out there, there's still battles going on behind the scenes trying to tell these stories. So I'm encouraged in the sense that we have these outlets, but by no means content and satisfied that we've arrived. Phil Allen Jr. is my guest on today's Let It Lopate at Large. His latest book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency, from Martin Luther King to Darnella Frazier, published by Fortress Books. The term poverty porn is sometimes used to describe the ways in which journalists, missionaries, and, and even charities share sensationalized images of 
of uh, deeply impoverished communities with wealthier audiences hoping to profit from print or news media or to, to raise donations from sympath- sympathetic or guilty donors. Um, at the same time, um, it, it, this is simply honest recording of very difficult circumstances, which uh, we, we should be made aware of. So how do we separate the one from the other? What do you mean by separating the one from the other? Well, I mean, if, if, on the one hand, it's important for people to know about some of these things. On the other hand, sometimes uh, what's being done is simply a, a way of people doing fundraising. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's an easy answer for that. I don't know if it's, if it's an easy uh, fix. I, I think you're going to always have people exploiting um, people, groups, situations, events, conditions for their own gain. Um, and at the same time, can there be some benefit that someone, people are starting to see these things, people are starting to notice this injustice? Sure. So I don't know if it's an easy fix. Well, can't uh, I, a lot I, be said about the power dynamics of the person capturing the images and those being captured? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there, there are power, power dynamics at play. Um, and the person being captured, the people being captured are always um, the objects. They're always, they're generally the ones being exploited. Because on, on one hand, you have the need is there. On the other hand, you have people who are willing to give out of their abundance, which then feeds this whole notion of paternalism. Um, what I'm concerned about is when people use the cameras and, and uh, show these images that it draws people to come into closer proximity to these, these people that they want to help and not coming into closer proximity to help them as if to have a Messiah savior complex, but coming in closer proximity to be present with them. Um, and in the other, in another sense, you may have to just take the good with the bad, that that's just how some people are going to be. They're going to give, they're going to use, um, people will use these opportunities for fundraising. Um, and, and sometimes that's the, maybe that's the, 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 what you have to kind of take with it to get the story out, to get the images out, to get help to the people. Because we live in such, we live in this imperfect world. We live in this, this flawed uh, world. And those are dynamics that we have to kind of navigate as we try to help. You say that the camera is just one of two necessary ingredients to demonopolize power. What what else is needed? This, as I mentioned earlier, the second ha- half of that is um, social media. Hmm. Um, you know, before you had your your footage, but you had to defer to someone else in power, some institution in power, some organization, news outlet, to get it out there, and that depended on. What story, what narrative they want to tell? Um, will this bring eyes to their TV station, to their, their show? Will this generate ratings? Will this stir up something? But today, with, the, with social media, everyone has a platform. A, a, a seemingly unknown person hmm. can post something and, it, and millions of people can see it. And sometimes it could be full of lies. It isn't Sometimes, always yeah. honest. Yeah. As we, we well, see, it's being used by people across the political spectrum. 
Absolutely. Unedited, though, unedited. Because what happens is you now leave the interpretation up to the viewers to say this is a lie or not, as opposed to I'm going to determine what's going to be presented. I'm going to decide from my position of power, oh, this is a lie, so I'm not going to play, um, present this if we go back years before social media. Or I'm going to show the part that I want to show. Now with social media and unedited, just raw, especially if it's live, if it's caught live on IG and Instagram live, Facebook live. Now you leave it up to people to decide if this is wrong, if it's right, if it's if it's uh, injustice, what have you, rather than monopolizing um, the power to interpret and publish the content. We have very little time left, but I wanted to address something else. You suggest that the Department of Justice's definition of racial profiling is a good start, but falls short. In what way? When we think about racial profiling, you know, it's it's one thing, and I don't have the definition offhand right, right now, but it's one thing to have an intellectual definition, an academic definition um, to try to help people understand. And it's another thing to have an embodied description of what it what it means. Um, and I think anytime we have those academic um, definitions, we miss some things. Um, racial profiling is inherently dehumanizing. Um, it, it's 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 targeting. Um, it is racist at its core. Mm-hmm. Um I think using these words that can cause people to have to feel in their bodies what we're really talking about is where it may fall short. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's where it may fall short. Is there anything you want to add before time runs out in in a minute and a half from now? Yeah, I think um, I want people to engage this book. I want people to be open to not just and and not just seeing the camera as I'm just saying the camera is just for black people. No, the camera is in any context. Um, I'm saying the history of us having to have something like a camera for protection, um, for any hope for it, for justice to be believed that our experience is what we say it is. I think that's important. I want people to walk away with that, but I also want people to, not be afraid, non-black people to not be afraid to talk about whiteness, to talk about the Im- impact of white supremacy, um, to set the stage for why we even need the camera. It's not an attack on white skin, white ethnicity, white persons per se, but this worldview and this ideology that goes back prior to any of us who are alive today and not be afraid to have those honest conversations and reflections on that part of our society. And that's why we played a little bit of Marvin Gaye's Can I Get a Witness? <laughs> yeah, I heard that. Which you talk about in the book. But you say yes. it's also, of course, a, a phrase you hear a lot in church. Yes, yes. Can I get a witness? That's what the preacher says. And that's what I'm saying the camera is saying. The camera is that witness. The camera is the witness. Phil Allen Jr. is a speaker, poet, documentary filmmaker, and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. And his latest book 
is the prophetic lens, the camera and black moral agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier, published by Fortress Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopate at Large, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear one of our, um, any more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Also check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera, and Black Moral Agency by Phil Allen Jr. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to get to WBAI.org. And, and also, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member really need the sustaining members, what we call BAI buddies, who will give us 10, 10, 15, 20, 25, however much they can afford a month. And if you become a BAI sustaining member for $10 a month or more, we'd be happy to send you a BAI tote bag. But uh, either way, I hope you'll call right now because we rely totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. One more time, the, to help support the only station in New York dial that's 100% listener sponsored, call 212 209 2950 or go to give to We're off Monday, but I hope you can join us on Tuesday when my guest will be Iulia Mendel discussing her new book about Ukraine called The Fight for Our Lives. We'll see you then. Have, have a great weekend.